another episode of the Women in Oxford's History podcast. I'm Bethany. And I'm Alice. And this month we'll be looking at the life of another woman who has contributed to Oxford's history. This month we are joined by Laura Aikenbert, who is here to talk to us about the archaeologist Gertrude Bell. Laura is an archaeologist and researcher. Could you start by giving us an overview of her early life? Of course. So um, Gertrude Margaret Lothian Bell um, was brought up in the northeast of England. Um, she was the daughter of a rich industrial family that had uh, founded the iron industry in uh, Yorkshire. Um, she was clearly from an elite background, and this um, enabled her to eventually come to Oxford as one of the first women at Lady Margaret Hall, which was um, the first women's college at Oxford. She excelled at Oxford um, entirely. She totally loved everything that Oxford had to offer. She um, got involved in all of the extracurricular activities that um, she could, from uh, rowing to acting and debating. Um, but her contemporaries at the time remember her as somebody that was very sociable and really loved her work as well. She had a deep curiosity for the um, history she was studying. And um, this clear um, intelligence uh, helped her to get one of the first um, first first women to get a first in history um, at Oxford in 1888 and she was only 19 years old as well um, so she came up early to Oxford and she didn't it didn't seem to bother her the kind of uh, male opposition to uh, women that were at uh, the university at the time. So when she left Oxford, what did she go on and do? Well, from the, her background and her family uh, connections, Gertrude was able to um, go out in 1892 um, to Tehran to visit her uncle, who was the British ambassador there at the time. She travelled quite a lot in her life, again, with the money from her family. She had travelled around Europe, she'd done a world tour with her brother, she'd um, climbed several mountains in the Swiss Alps, uh, one of which was even named after her, after an accident where she was... Uh, stuck for two days swinging off a rope but in Tehran she really developed her what became her lifelong interest in the Middle East in 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 uh, Tehran and what is now modern Iran and Iraq um, was of course ancient Mesopotamia which has only just been uh, started to be excavated by uh, the French in about 1843 um, mainly because of the, the landscape of these countries is really uh, difficult to excavate in and to, to travel across so it's pretty much unknown territory but Gertrude went um, around with her uncle um, and was taking photographs of uh, archaeological sites that had previously never been photographed before and of course at this time photography was still a new um, new phenomenon so even for a woman to be taking photographs or anybody to be taking photographs of these uh, monuments um, was pretty impressive and she just became enamoured with with the Middle East, really, and she came back um, and studied Arabic, uh, learned Farsi. She was uh, translating um, poems of uh, Iranian poets like Hafiz, which are still um, admired today. Her, her translations are still used. And it wasn't... Uh, she, she published a book called Persian Pictures um, in 1894 of um, these, these initial first travels. Um, and after that, she went back to the Middle East and continued travelling, but this time with the Bedouins to get into more deep into the deserts um, and to try and find uh, more early Christian, Islamic and Hittite um, architecture and art that had not been discovered before. She seems to have had quite a difficult time while she was travelling, the circumstances. Yeah, I mean, she was uh, attacked by <laughs> various uh, tribesmen at different times, including her notebooks and camera being stolen. Um, and that actually upset her the most, uh, aside from like her personal danger. She just wanted to carry on uh, with her work. 
And did you say she it was against the advice of the British consulate that she should travel? Yes, of course. The Foreign Office were not um, impressed that a woman was going to go solo into uncharted territory um, with some uh, you know Bedouin tribesmen alone, and particularly considering her background, like you know an elite woman would usually be sent to get married um, and and stay at home really, and she's going out by herself against all advice um, without a military escort with with you know foreigners and speaking Arabic and managing to kind of like find her way and this makes her writing particularly interesting because she's able to communicate she's not um, just a foreigner with no uh, interaction with um, with the local people she's actually able to get to know them quite well including the women who um, she's staying with inside the Bedouin camps. So we also get a bit of a sense of the, the, the Bedouin, Bedouin women who are even more like secluded from history and have kind of been erased almost. So what was her academic work like? Well, the areas that she's travelling in, in what was ancient Mesopotamia, were pretty much uncharted territory. No one had really been there before because of the desert landscapes, um, really harsh terrains. People did not really know what she was going to find. But in the places in which she is... Uh, travelling through like Palestine, Jerusalem, Damascus. The previous travellers that had been there before were mainly focused on biblical interpretations, but this was not Gertrude's interest. She was much more interested in seeing how local people um, responded and had uh, subsequently used and interacted with um, the sites of ancient interest. So how common was it for people to be able to travel in the Middle East at this time? I mean, not at all, really. I mean, tur- tourism had um, expanded during the 19th century with the um, improvements in you know, transport, railways. Um, Thomas Cook had started his uh, you know, tours, which had gone into Europe. Um, but in, I mean, Gertrude Bell really wanted to, you know, kind of reject this idea of just going to look at things, but really wanted to study them and to have that kind of like sense of ad- adventure when you are travelling. Um, which she kind of dubbed wild travel in her book, The Desert and the Stone. And, you know, she really wanted to get to know the people that were living in the countries, really trying to get an understanding of the culture, um, which I think, you know, learning, learning local languages really helped with that um, in a way that, you know, perhaps today we, we, we don't do so much. So World War I broke out in 1914. How did she get involved in the war? So um, in the Middle East, the Ottoman Empire was on the verge of collapse. Um, So the Allied powers were basically amongst themselves trying to work out how they were going to draw the new um, boundaries upon the collapse of this empire. Um, And of course, the foreign office kind of realised that this travelling archaeologist that had spent so many years travelling with these Bedouins through these um, areas that were held by the Ottomans probably had a lot of knowledge that would be useful for them uh, when kind of drawing up the, 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 new, the new boundaries of the, of the countries that they were going to split up. Um, she also knew Arabic and she knew all of the tribal leaders. So she was the first woman um, to be hired by British military intelligence in 1915. She really felt that she was probably the only person that was able to um, complete this job of finding out what different people were living in these different areas, how, how can she find out more information to help the Allied powers work out what they were going to do. But of course, being the only woman in a very male-dominated uh, you know, military environment, the military men around her really resented the fact that she was the um, intelligent person that was giving uh, this information, that she, that she knew all of this information in the first place that they had no idea about. Um, in fact, Mark Sykes, who um, was the architect of the Sykes-Picot Agreement in 1916, which 
was an, a first arrangement to work out what the Allied powers were going to uh, split up these areas into, called her a conceited, gushing, flat-chested, man-woman, globe-trotting, rump-wagging, blethering ass. So not a very uh, friendly environment, certainly extremely uh, misogynistic views um, amongst the men around her, but she seems to have taken it in her stride and managed to, uh, you know, up on the end of uh, the First World War, she was at the 1921 Cairo conference with Churchill, with T.U. Lawrence. Um, the diplomatic photos see, show her standing right next to them. Um, and yet the memoirs of all of these uh, men that were there seem to not really mention her at all. So T.U. Lawrence was working in the same area, wasn't he? Had they met before? Yeah, I mean, Bell was actually 20 years older than uh, T.E. Lawrence, and they'd actually met in 1909 on uh, an excavation at the Hittite city of Carchemish. Um, it was actually a friend of Gertrude Bell's that was excavating the site, and T.E. Lawrence was just fresh out of Oxford and kind of his first uh, post-university trip. Um, and Gertrude was there, you know, kind of like showing him the ropes and showing him how to, how to do things. So there's kind of a bit of a... a a debate now about whether I mean, some people call Gertrude Bell the female Lawrence of Arabia but really Lawrence of Arabia is the male Gertrude Bell isn't it really so she did play quite a role in kind of drawing up all these boundaries what kind of views was she promoting while she was involved at the Cairo conference well Gertrude Bell was always she was always an advocate for Arab self-rule I think uh, the many years that she'd spent in the desert with the Bedouin tribes had given her, her a big uh, you know a great appreciation for the, the the local people she really did feel that um, you know, they needed to be in control of their own country and that, you know, Britain really needed to withdraw kind of like their influence from, from there. Um, she was very aware that this situation was an extremely difficult one in order to resolve. I mean, in, in, her, in her memoirs, she even says things like it's a helpless feeling that there's so much to be pulled straight in human affairs and so little pulling power. Um, there were so many different types of tribes that all um, held claim to different areas that she even was... Uh, suggesting a flexible border to account for the nomadic mo movements of the different tribes. Um, of course, the British government wanted uh, you know, strict um, country uh, boundaries. But, you know, she, at least Gertrude, she did raise the, these issues at these meetings, and even though she, fe she felt like she did the best job that she could, but she was also very aware of the flaws that were inside it. At least she was happy that she managed to install an Arab monarch, so um, Faisal, who was leading the Arab revolt against the Ottomans, he was crowned king rather than a foreign monarch that had happened in places like Greece. So, uh, you know, in the 19th century, uh, King Otto of Greece became, was actually uh, a Bavarian who was installed by the European powers. So, you know, at least it was a, an Arab leader. But of course, even the internal conflicts between um, the different uh, Arab areas meant that, unfortunately, the, the monarchy was not, did, did not last very long. I think Gertrude's uh, deep knowledge of these tribes that she'd been travelling and living with for so long um, definitely gave her a, a different perspective to the other people at the Cairo conference that were that were there. Um, she was very aware that um, you know you can't just supplant thousands of years of tribal context by with just you know putting in Western values. In fact, she very much was of the opinion, and quite rightly, that their own values existed long before such Western developments. And, you know, the fallout from that we can even see in Iraq and Iran and Iraq today. So she's had an incredible life with all these amazing uh, opportunities and achievements. Could you give us a sense of what she was like as a person? Well, I certainly feel that Gertrude Bell was, you know, an incredibly quick-witted uh, woman, probably quite formidable in person, but 
definitely a really, really interesting person for me. I think she was really intelligent. Um, her friends seem to say that she had a gift for making people feel, you know, that life was full of adventure and lots of rich and exciting things that you should go out and explore. Um, she seems to have, like, disregarded opposition against her. She just went forward with what she really wanted to do. She was definitely curious. She, you know, was at Oxford, was correcting her uh, Oxford tutors and was over exam with things that she felt they, they were saying incorrectly. Her family were a little bit worried sometimes at this kind of what they considered like an Oxfordy manner, like being a bit too confrontational um, with people. But I don't think that it was, you know, meant in a confrontational way. I think it was just a, a way of kind of trying to, you know, understand the world around her and just. I think her whole life, the way that she's you know, kind of fallen into these big world events like the First World War and become a spy and a diplomat. And actually, she was an archaeologist and she was just getting on with, with her studies, really. Um, and after the war ended, um, her next big project was to set up the National Museum of Antiquities in Baghdad. And she became the first uh, director of it um, to house all the treasures of the things that she'd discovered on her excavation. So as a person, I think just very passionate about her subject. A, a deep sense of really wanting to explore the world and, 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 and see other people's opinions and really get to know other people. And she held what we might now consider to be quite surprising views about the suffrage movement. Yeah, so she was actually very anti-suffrage. Um, she was actually the honorary secretary of the British Women's Anti-Suffrage League. It, it, obviously for us now, we think a kind of independent uh, woman that's you know pushing boundaries, a pioneer, and of, of her age would probably be um, promoting uh, women's uh, you know freedoms and interests. Um, but it seems that I think she had the view that there were other issues that needed to be addressed before women got the vote, such as education. She was lucky enough to have a great education with her with, with her privileged background and, and be able to come to Oxford um, and study, which had given her great opportunities, but. Um, I think she felt very proud of her achievements and felt like women needed to achieve those uh, achievements through hard work themselves as well. And because of society's views of women at the time, those needed to be addressed before they were given the vote. It is quite inter an interesting topic, actually, because her, her, her friends from, from LMH, from, from her college, who were also you know, went on to be professionals in their fields, were, were pleased that she kind of, you know, escaped from these feminist movements that, you know, distinguished women have suffered from. So there does seem to be a degree of being very proud of her own hard work and where that got her and kind of, you know, I, I think she would definitely encourage women to do great things, but they had to do those things. So she was very independent, obviously, and she travelled solo a lot. What kind of relationships did she have with people? Well, people certainly remembered her as an extremely sociable person that remembered really minute details of um, the conversations that she had with people. So people from LMH really remembered her as a vivid person um, that, you know, brought life to a lot of uh, social events. Um, the Bedouins had always welcomed her back into their tribes every time she'd come back to the Middle East, even after periods away. Romantically, she had fallen for um, a member of the British Foreign Service called Henry Cadogan in 1892 when she'd first um, gone to Tehran to visit her uncle but unfortunately her family felt like he didn't have enough money and they forced her to end the engagement and then Kadogan uh, died only a few months uh, later. Later on when she'd been travelling through Turkey and Syria she'd met the British army officer Charles Darcy Wiley. She, they'd fallen 
desperately in love with each other, it seems, from their letters. Um, but unfortunately, Charles was married. So uh, there's big debate about whether he would ever have left his wife for her. But we will never know because unfortunately he died at Gallipoli in 1915. And uh, it doesn't seem like Gertrude um, had any other relationships after that. Um, and just remained a kind of solo adventurer and kind of f focusing on her archaeology work. So could you take us through the last years of her life? Yeah, so after the war, Gertrude had uh, set up this uh, museum of uh, antiquities in Baghdad. So she focused back on her archaeology work. She wanted to uh, focus on the things that she'd uh, had to abandon in her studies during the war. Um, and she continued to work on that until 1926, when age 57, she was found dead um, from what seems to be an overdose of sleeping pills. It's really unclear whether this was um, a suicide or not. Um, she, she seems to have asked her maid to have woken her up in the morning, but the, the, she may have done this because suicide was still um, a punishable offence at this time, so the maid may have been um, you know, prosecuted for not uh, helping her if that was the case. But it seems that Belle, from her letters, she was suffering from pretty severe depression for many years. Um, particularly as she was getting older, I don't think that she was able to cope with the adventurous lifestyle that she'd built for herself. I mean, she'd been used to kind of, you know, uh, riding for, on camels for hours, climbing mountains, you know, digging things up um, and getting older. She wasn't able to do this anymore and she um, had got sick at several points. Um, and the, I think her, her constant striving for new challenges to try and achieve overachieving all the time by also being impatient of her kind of mental state of mind and you know her, her loneliness at the end of the day potentially and lack of support because she was the only woman in a man's world trying to do very difficult tasks that are still pretty unsolvable today. How has Gertrude been remembered? Well I think she's been pretty much overlooked really for the major importance that she had in the events of the Middle East. You know, she took over 7,000 photographs from her journeys. Um, and, you know, some of these sites now have been destroyed um, from the Syrian civil war. So sites like Aleppo and Raqqa. But her photographs are some of the most precious evidence we now have of these sites. Um, she wrote really um, important books about early Christian, Islamic, and uh, her site, Ar uh, Archaeology and Architecture. Um, the National Museum of Antiquities in Baghdad was the first thing of its kind at the time. Um, there was no uh, museum like there is at the Mosin, um, in the Mosin Mesopotamia artifact. Um, it was, though, the museum that was looted during the US invasion in 2003. So there's still 13,864 items that were stolen and are still unaccounted for, which gives you a sense of uh, you know, how, how many things Gertrude Bell had, had, had managed to, to find and discover and you know, bring, bring to light during her, her lifetime. The monarchy that she installed was overthrown in 1958, so that only lasted about two generations. But again, we can, we're clear from her letters that she, she knew that this was probably going to be the case, really, because of the unstable, shaky um, situation. Uh, the opinion on her in Iraq is a bit divided. Some see her as a kind of, you know, imperialist attitude, colonial power coming in and drawing boundary lines. But I think for quite a lot of people, they recognise that she was trying to put an effort in to take into the consideration the views of the desert tribes, which otherwise would have been totally um, ignored, really. Um, and it's only from her travels and from her work that she was able to 
he kind of thrusts into that um, position of power, kind of accidental <laughs> spyism. Um, but I think really, like, aside from her actual academic diplomatic um, achievements, her real example is just her true kind of grit and determination to just let societal limitations not get in her way and just go out and do what she really found interesting to satisfy that curiosity from her first visit to the Middle East to go and just keep living there, keep meeting new people, keep um, learning new languages um, and seizing all the opportunities that came in her way despite the fact that people were trying to tell her that she couldn't do this, she couldn't do that. She's certainly a woman that would just live life with as much energy as she could um, and push herself to both the physical and mental edge to succeed despite all the obstacles she encountered. Thank you so much, Laura, for coming to talk to us about Gertrude today. No problem, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Women in Oxford's History. Join us again next month when we'll explore the life of another woman in Oxford's past, 